Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I welcome back our friend Kai Wu, founder of Sparkfine Capital, to discuss his most recent paper on the intangible value factor. We start the discussion by talking about the rise of intangibles and value investing, and then we dive into Kai's research on the intangible value factor, how it can be integrated in as a six factor on top of the current five factor model, and what the characteristics of these firms that score high based on intangibles look like and how they would impact a factor constructed portfolio. Kai's research is super deep and impressive and investors interested in investing in innovative companies with high intangible assets will really enjoy this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Sparkline Capital's Kai Wu. Hey, Kai, thanks so much for coming on again with us. Thanks for having me. We, like we always do when we have you on, we love the research that's being produced over at Sparkline. And we're going to use um, the most recent paper you published, Intangible Value, a Six Factor, as the main thrust and discussion um, for uh, what we're going to talk about today. For those um, folks that may not be familiar with Kai, or as they listen to this and they're interested in his research, go to Sparkline Capital. You may even want to grab the latest this report that we're talking about and actually follow along, um, either read it before or maybe after, because there's going to be a lot of other valuable stuff that we might not be able to cover in, you know, 45 to 60 minutes here. Um, and a lot of Kai's research is sort of top notch and he's been putting out some great stuff over there, which is why we have him on. Um, and so the other thing just worth mentioning here is he is going to share and reference some visuals. So if anyone's listening to us over on Apple or Spotify or any audio uh, platform, you may want to come over to the Excess Returns channel on YouTube just because those visuals and stuff is going to help further, I guess, educate and support, I think, some of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, So, Kai, as we sort of step into this, where we wanted to start with you is not necessarily on intangible as a sixth factor immediately at the gate, but sort of talk about some of the things with value investing and intangibles and actually research that you've put out over the last few years. But I think this is it's important to kind of cover that up front because a, a lot of that obviously is built on um, in latest report. So one of the things that I want to ask you where we want to start is when we think about value stocks over the past 10 or 15 years, sort of their relative performance versus the market, but maybe more specifically, and this is where you focus on, you know, looking at value versus these high intangible companies. And um, yeah, I'll just let you kind of speak to that because there's there's sort of a lot lot in there. Yeah, look, so I I come from the traditional value camp. Um, You know, I've basically been a systematic value investor since I got my first job out of college. And um, look, the, the beauty of value investing is, you know, the principles are just, you know, so theoretically pure. You want to buy cheap stocks. You want to, if you're long short, sell expensive stocks. Now, the problem, as you alluded to, Justin, is that you know, it just hasn't worked, right? You, you look at the back tests and you even my performance. And for decades after decades, you see consistent outperformance for, say, low price to book stocks as opposed to high price to book stocks. And then for whatever reason, starting 15 years ago, it went the other way around. And the, you know, the, the strategies of, of buying low price to book just stopped working. And in fact, have underperformed dramatically um, over this over this period. And you know, folks have done a variety of um, things to try to save the factor, looking at you know different denominators or sector neutralizing, et cetera. But you know, it doesn't make much of a difference, right? So this is the big puzzle. This is a trillion dollar question um, in the in the industry. 
And so, you know, coming from that background, what I was very curious uh, to answer and to address was the question of, you know, how has the fact that the economy has transformed dramatically since the origins of value investing, you know, 100 years ago with Ben Graham security analysis, right, in the 1930s, um, how has the transformation to the economy affected the ability for price to book and other traditional value factors uh, to, to outperform? Right? So if you think about the companies today, if you think about you know, Microsoft or Apple, the biggest stocks, right? they don't use tangible capital to generate earnings. They use intangible assets. And when I say intangible, I mean IP, intellectual property, brand, human capital, network effects. These are the assets today in the modern information age that allow companies to outperform as opposed to tangible. And so what you see is, you know, go back to the traditional, you know, tangible value factor, tangible value strategies, you see, you know, not only underperformance and the inability to add value within, say, technology stocks and other sorts of asset light businesses, but you also see a strong bias, right? So to the extent where you are focused on companies with um, high, you know, asset-heavy business models, you're going to be finding yourself in banks and insurance companies, in financial materials, energy, and you're going to be heavily biased against the companies like Apple and Google. You're not going to give them credit for their intangible assets, and you're always going to be as expensive. You're always going to be short them, and hence the kind of problem we alluded to initially, right? This underperformance of value. So we view intangible assets as being kind of the key um, missing piece of the puzzle. Right? Value missing should work. It's just that we're mismeasuring value because we're focused on this tangible capital, which you know was once you know in Ben Graham's day 100% of what mattered, and today is a vanishingly small amount. Right, because you know, value is more and more intangible. So I think that you know, kind of sums up the, much of the work we spent the past years doing on the value factor. What do you think about this idea of ways to try to fix this issue with intangibles, basically capitalizing them um, you know, and, and trying to fi fix the problem that way? So you're trying to capitalize these intangible assets. I mean, what do you think of, of that approach? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's, a, it's directionally correct, and I think it, it helps you know, get us part of the way there. And just, just to kind of make the problem more clear, the, the inconsistency is that uh, U.S. gap accounting, right, when we have, when a company makes, say, like, $10 million of physical capital expenditures, let's say they build a new factory, that gets capitalized. It becomes an asset on their balance sheet, and then it gets depreciated over time. Um, whereas R&D or advertising, intangible investment, is expensed, meaning it comes out directly out of the, uh, the top line. So it comes hits your net earnings this year. Right. So think about a company like, like Coca-Cola. Over the course of its lifetime, it spent $100 billion on advertising its brand. In theory, you should have a huge asset on its balance sheet right, for, for brand equity. But it doesn't because of the way accounting works. So some folks, both practitioners and academics, have suggested you know, just reverting the way we treat intangible investment the same way we do intangible investment, capitalize it, and amortize it. Um, now, this may, makes sense and it seems like a, a better approach. The, the problem is that when you actually look at what happens when you do this, it only kind of gets you 30% of the way back, right? So in other words, your portfolios are less biased against tech stocks and, you know, biotech and other intangible intensive businesses, but you're still, you still have that bias. Your performance is less bad, um, but you're still in a drawdown, right? So empirically, it, it seems to only partially address, address the issue. And, you know, my thought as to why this might be the case is just, is just that, you know, with intangible assets, the link between the amount of investment put in and the resulting output is pretty weak, right? Think about like yeah, you know, the search engine wars, right? When you had a couple kids in a, in a garage in Palo Alto invent like PageRank and Google, right? And you have you know, all these teams of researchers at, at larger companies, more established names, um, you know, come in second place, right? So the point being that like 
any sort of investment, whether it's in R&D or you know, think differently in, in advertising, right? you have all these kind of influencer campaigns that go viral and create a ton of um, impressions and brand uh, equity with very little um, capital investment. Right? So if there's not really a strong link between the, the, the historical input costs and then the resulting output. And I think that's why accounting, obviously, by definition, is based on historical um, investment, is, is not necessarily a great way uh, to, to, uh, to quantify the value in the resulting intangible assets. Yeah, one of the things I've seen, too, is it's hard to figure out even, like, what to capitalize. So, for instance, a lot of companies, at least from what I look see in the data, like, a lot of companies don't report advertising expense. So you're dealing with what percentage of SG&A am I going to use? And that's probably the appropriate percentage to use. It's probably different for every single company. So you know, a lot of people, I don't know, I think Michael Mobison mentioned something like, I forget it was 30% or whatever it is that he thought that he uses in his research. But it's very hard to even figure out what to use when you use that method. That's right. Yeah, I think you have to make a ton of assumptions. You have to figure out what share of R&D and SG&A should be capitalized. Is it 30%? Is it 90%? Is it 10%? And then, you know, how quickly to amortize that, right? Is it one year? Is it, is it 10 years, right? So I think... You know, some folks have tried to do adjustments where they look by, by sector, by industry, and use a different assumption per industry. But again, the, the more you do that, the, the, the weaker your statistical power is. These are all like using regressions to figure it out. And at the end, and that, that kind of at the end, you just converge on this idea. We're trying to you know, fit this, this kind of model, but like it's, it's not very precise. It doesn't really you know, work that well. Like it, it's definitely better than, than doing nothing, but you know, I don't think it gets you there. You had mentioned the... Um the main categories of intangibles, but can you, can we just walk through those four uh, pillars, I guess, or the ways that a company can have a moat around their intangible capital and actually what you go, what, what gives us an example of what is measured in each one. Got it. Yeah, of course. Um, and look, there's, you know, there, we have these four pillars. That's how we like to you know, segregate the, the universe of intangible assets. There may be other taxonomies that make more sense. Um, we think that, you know, amongst these four pillars, we can kind of span most of the types of intangibles we tend to see in the wild um, with, with the fewest number of pillars. Um, so that said, we have four things. So the first is intellectual property, right? That's not just patents, it's also software and any proprietary knowledge, trade secrets, data. Second, we have brand equity, right? That's customer loyalty and brand recognition. Uh, human capital is a third category. That's having a, a skilled, aligned, and motivated workforce. So culture kind of falls into that category too. And finally, network effects, right? This is this engaged ecosystem of you know, external producers, consumers, think Apple, sorry, think like Uber, think um, you know, any of the social networks, obviously, um, even the New York Stock Exchange, right, has network effects. Um, so these are kind of the four categories of intangibles that we think you know, drive most of the value of, of names today. And how do you combine those together? So I think the next interesting question is, how does that become like a value factor? So how do you take all those together? I mean, is it similar to like those of us who use traditional factors, the way we would build a value composite? Are you doing the same thing, but using these more advanced factors? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I don't want to say there's two steps, right? So step one is defining the actual variables at, at stake. So how do, you, how do you quantify IP? How do you quantify brand? And then the second piece is then taking that and putting that into a factor. The second piece is very traditional. It's, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Um, we're very much using the same uh, portfolio construction uh, style that, we, that I use, that, that you know, volume investors, um, you know, generally use or quantitative investors use. The first category, I think that, that's kind of the unique aspect, right? Which is, you know, how do you, how do you quantify, say, IP, right? Well, like one of the things I just told you is that I don't think that looking at the accounting statement and, and, and measuring the historical R&D and even capitalizing it with some sophisticated algorithm is really going to get you there, right? So what we say is let's instead um, look at the, you know, look directly at the quality of the IP of a company, 
And so one place to start, right? If you were saying, hey, Kai, give me an example of you know, a signal that might correlate with IP. I'd say, all right, well, why don't we look at patents, right? For most of the Russell 1000 companies, um, these are large names, you know, patents are a significant part of their uh, value. And so what we'll do is we'll say, all right, let's download the entire patent database. Um, and, you know, the first patent was written in 1790, signed by George Washington, right? We have millions and millions of patents. And we'll go through them and read each abstract. Now, we won't do it by ourselves. We'll do it using machine learning, right, using uh, natural language processing. And what we'll attempt to do is to say, each patent, is it cutting edge or lagging edge? And keep in mind that it changes through time. So, for example, like the, the combustion engine was obviously a, a game-changing technology when the automobile revolution happened. But today, maybe electric vehicles would be considered more cutting edge. Right? So what we do is we basically try to assign an innovativeness score for each patent, and then we roll it up to the firm level. So each company has a, um, has a, has a score. And then the thing is that it becomes a, this is the value part of the strategy. We're not just going to buy the company with the most patents or the most innovative patents. We're going to look for the company with the, uh, you know, where, where for each dollar invested, say in market cap, right, you get the most patents out. Right? It's a yield-based metric. Um, it's a value strategy. So similar to how you look at like price of the book, for each dollar invested, how much book value do I get out? It's for each dollar invested, how much human capital IP do I get out? Right? So these are all scaled by price. We have dozens of different things. They're all heterogeneous. You need to create you know, specific models for each category. Then you kind of sum them up, normalize, sum them up to the pillar level. And then we again sum, you know, this is a hierarchical uh, process, to a single composite score, which we now have that goes low to high for each company, um, where you have companies that have high intangible value and low intangible value. And, that, and it kind of represents the combination of companies with strong brands, strong IP, and strong human capital. So would each of the pillars be equally weighted in the process? That's right, yeah. Okay. Um, and how far can you go back with this? You know, I was thinking, you know, we'll talk in a second about testing this against other factors in the paper, but like, how far can you actually go back and measure this stuff? So again, it depends a lot on the data sources. So you know, it, the, the patent example I mentioned, that goes back you know, hundreds of years. It goes back before the stock market. So you know, that's obviously not the binding factor. We also look at other sources, though. Like we look at LinkedIn on the human capital front. Right. Which companies are able to attract and retain the best talent? You know, LinkedIn doesn't go back more than, say, 2008. You can kind of get the histories of people's employment beforehand, um, but you, know, you have to somewhat uh, be skeptical of the quality of the data as you go further and further back. Um, and then there's you know, you know, 10Ks. We look at earnings call transcripts. We'll look at job posts. Uh, Glassdoor is an interesting uh, data source for culture. Social media right, is another uh, data source. So you know, I, I'd say that you kind of like, it kind of depends. Um, you know, we're able to construct back tests that are, we think are reasonably robust going back to the, the 90s. Um, we've, we've done tests back to the 70s as well. And you know, one thing we find is that over time, the signal gets stronger and stronger as we're able to add more and more data sources to the mix. Right? One of the kind of parallel theses here is, you know, so Sparkline, my firm, we're kind of known for two things. We're known for intangible investing, we're also known for AI and machine learning and kind of our approach to using these technologies in order to kind of unlock the value in alternative data. Right, so go back to the, the point we discussed earlier. We think accounting data is, is you know, not really going to get us where we need to go. The good news right, is that alternative data, right, so all the stuff I just mentioned, is exploding. Right? More and more information is being digitized as an exponential ramp up. And to the extent where we can now use technologies like ChatGPT, GPT-4, GPT-3 that underlie it. Right? We've been using these, these types of transformer models, large language models, since you know, 2020, I guess, 2019 is when we've been started using them um, to unlock this information. We're able to now bring it into the investment process. So now as quants, we can take advantage of the information that was kind of previously locked up in, in patents and, and stuff. Um, and so you know, as we roll forward through time, our expectation would be that 
you know, we're able to actually improve the process, right? Because we get more and more um, different uh, data sources available um, to us. So you, you had an interesting chart in there where you, where you looked at the, all the performance of all the factors over time, and you, ha you were able to put this intangible factor in there along with the other factors, which was unique. I've never seen that done before. Can you just talk about how the performance of this factor is sort of lined up against the other factors? Yeah, so I think I should first mention how we create the factor. Um, and so that's pretty straightforward. The idea here was we want to be able to bring this intangible value research into the academic canon. Right? And that means look at it relative to a Fama French five-factor model. That's kind of the starting point. You can't you know, do a paper without citing them, right? Um, and so we ended up taking this score I mentioned that goes from low to high and building a, building a long, short factor in the same way that you know, Fama and French do it in their paper, right? which is basically segment the universe into large and small cap stocks. Within large, we gotta say go long on the top 33%, short the bottom 33%, not on price to book, but on price to you know intangible value, um, and then market cap weight. Do the same in small, add them together. Right. So now the construction is is, cons is consistent with the way that Fama and French do their original paper. And, and by the way, what I'm going to say is the back test. You know, we we don't include transaction costs or shorting fees to be consistent with the way Fama and French do it themselves. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. So that be as as it is. The performance is, you know, of the, of the intangible value factor. We call it IHML, intangible high minus low, to distinguish it from high minus low, which is the traditional value factor. Um, you know, is you know right there in the mix over the past, you know, 25 or so years that we test it. Um, the market factor has done the best, right? It's been a bull market in stocks. Then the intangible value factor has done quite well, and then we have momentum and quality. Although momentum has done less well the past, you know, decade, and also because it has more turnover than the other factors. Net of transaction costs would probably be a little bit lower. And then we have uh, value, which I mentioned has been struggling in this past decade, and then small cap as well. Right? So that's kind of how things line up. But the point being that, look, these are things, all things that have historically, you know, again, in a back test, added excess returns um, in, a, um, in a relatively consistent manner. One of the things I'm always curious about with factors, since we use them in a long-only implementation, but a lot of the testing is long-short, is like how much of the return comes from the long side and how much comes from the short side. And like I've looked at that a lot with traditional factors, but were you able to look at that with this too to see like how much is on the long side and how much is on the short side? Yeah, no, I think this is a really important point because if you told me I have this great factor, but it only works on the short side, right? <laughs> then like for 99% of investors who are long-only, that's not really that useful. Um, the good news um, is we did test this and it's pretty evenly distributed. Right, so roughly speaking, half the alpha comes from long versus market, and half comes from short versus market. And how, how correlated this? You, you had an interesting chart in there that looked at the correlation between this factor and all the other factors. Like, how correlated was this to all the other factors, but particularly to value? Yeah, so I think this was the key takeaway from this paper. Um, so now that we have the C6 factors sitting alongside each other, what is their correlation of intangible value to the other ones? Um, now, it varies through time. I've been, I looked at it on like a rolling basis. And it varies across factors, obviously. The, I think we found that the correlations range from negative 14 to 9%, right? And that's out of negative 100 to 100, so that's a very narrow band. So it's pretty much close to zero. Um, you know, the correlation with small cap tends to be slightly negative. Momentum is slightly negative as well, although the momentum you know, factor itself turns over so much um, that's not that stable. Slightly, slightly positive correlation to quality of 11%. And value is the most interesting, because on average, over this period, the correlation to value is 9%. But like, that's kind of like a tale of two cities, where the first half um, of the samples, like through the tech bubble, right, the correlations are, are more positive. Right? And um, over time, it becomes more and more negative. And I think that's because the intangibles have become more important over time, and investors have at least partially recognized the value in intangibles. And therefore, you know, to the extent that the market's semi-accurately pricing intangibles, it means that 
there's going to be a negative correlation between you know traditional value and intangible value. So we'll talk about this more later. But so the correlation data would tell us this is this is an interesting thing to blend with the other factors, right? Would that be the takeaway from that? Yes, that that would that's correct. Um, so I want to talk before we talk about in detail about your six factor model. I just want to talk about factor models in general because I think we sort of take for granted that people understand why these things exist. Uh, you know, we've kind of had we've, we've added factors over time. We started with Cap M. I'm just wondering if you could talk in general about like what asset pricing models do and kind of why they exist in the world. Yeah, look, the, the point of these models is to explain stock returns, right? And, and to be specific, cross-sectional stock returns, right? So what is it that drives the performance of Apple versus Google, right? Is it their sector? Is it their beta? Is it their value factor exposure? Is it their quality, right? To the extent where we can get a really high R squared, in other words, a model that explains as much of the variance as possible, that is a, a good model. And can you just talk a little about the history of these models? I mean, I know we started like back when I was in college, we were taught CAPM, which has sort of been invalidated now. And we've kind of added factors over time to the Fama French model. But can you just talk about sort of the history of where we've come from and where we are today? Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, my, look, this is going back, this is going back. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the original CAPM, right? The idea there was, you know, you should only be compensated return-wise for systemic risks, right? And so anything idiosyncratic, like if Apple goes up or down, shouldn't be compensated. And so therefore, if that is true, then the only thing that matters is each stock's beta to the market. So if you're a beta 2, you should have twice the return to a beta 1 stock, we should have twice the return to a beta 0.5 stock, right? Simple as that. But the problem is that doesn't work in practice, right? Like, as you point out, empirically, um, you know, beta 2 stocks don't have twice the return to beta 1 stocks. So what happened was, like, I think in the early 90s, although, you know, at, at GMO where I used to work, you know, Jeremy was doing this in the 70s, um, uh, you know, the Fama French uh, professors, they added two more factors. They said, let's add size and let's add uh, book price to book, right? This is the famous value factor. And they found that these two things, along with the market factor, explain the, the situation way better. And then after that, um, you know, momentum became a thing as well, like trailing, say, 12-month returns, sometimes lag one month, uh, you know, was, was shown to, to produce excess returns. And then, like, the five-factor Fama French model came out where they added... Um, investment factor, which is like trailing asset growth, and um, they added uh, quality or, or profitability, so ROE, let's say. Um, and and you know, each time we add this, we, the R squared goes up, so to speak, right? We're able to explain more and more of the world. Um, and that's kind of just been, been the evolution, although you know, now we're at this point in time where like, the question is, like, it's, we can always add more factors, but at some point you have to pare down and ask kind of fundamentally, you know, what's the, the way I would say it is, what's the fewest number of factors that you can put into a model to explain the most of the world, right? Because of course you can always just put more things in and yeah, it increase your R squared. But at some point that you know doesn't make much sense. So I think intuition is very, very important. Like creating like factors that have like a fundamental reason why they should exist, um, you know, is important. So using that framework, if we if we start with the Fama French five factor model, how did you think about analyzing, you know, whether your factor would add value to that model that already existed? Yeah, so, so I think there's two approaches, right? So the, the first thing is is just statistical. And I already walked you through the example that the correlations are zero. So just Mathematically, right? This is the holy grail of active management. We know that if you add more return streams that aren't correlated and they have positive expected returns, that's better, right? But I think the other thing to kind of ensure that this is indeed a distinct sixth factor, right, is you need to kind of fo focus on the intuition behind it, right? So let, let's go to the idea of value versus intangible value. In theory, these things should be the same, right? They're trying to do the same thing. They're both looking at price relative to, to fundamental value. But the difference is that, you know, while tangible value focuses on the tangible side of the balance sheet, intangible values focus on the intangible side of the balance sheet. And what that means is that the actual companies that are, that are held by you know, HML and IHML are very different, 
right? Banks and uh, industrials as opposed to tech companies, consumer brands and services businesses. And so just by definition, we, we know that the correlations have to be low just because they're different companies. Of course, they're gonna be low. That gives us some insur assurance that they're distinct. So similarly with quality, right? The quality has been, you know, while value has done poorly the past decade, quality has done very well. So anything with a quality tilt has outperformed um, the past decade, right? It's one of the success stories within the factor space. Um, what is quality? Quality companies are companies with high profitability. How do you generate high profitability is you have intangible assets. Think about like, you know, how come Hermes is able to charge so much for its bags or how much, how come some, you know, pharma company can charge 80% profit margins for some drug? It's because they have the patent, it's because they have the brand, right? So if we know that intangible assets are what drive profitability, why is, you know, intangible value and quality 0% correlated or uncorrelated? And I think the reason why is we actually did the study and this was included in this paper where what we did was we said, let's look at each company on their intangible value score. Um, and then we'll look at how that affects the change in profitability in ROE over the next one years, two years, three years, four years, et cetera. And what we found was that companies that invest heavily in intangible investments, say they you know, are putting a lot of money into R&D or into um, marketing, right? building up these intangible assets, the, the big upfront investment that leads to zero marginal costs or low marginal cost um, output down the line, and that these companies actually have a reduction in profitability the next year which kind of makes sense because you're putting so much money into this new effort that is yet to pay off. But then over the next year, the following year, and so on and so forth, you start to see a pretty significant increase in ROE for these companies, which is to say that you know, when management at these, at, these, at these firms are saying, all right, let's do all this R&D, let's do all this marketing, they are doing it rationally. They're actually, you know, there's a good reason why they're doing it and it actually works. And so what, what I would say is that like, you know, with quality as opposed to intangible value, they're both, both as investors are looking for intangible assets, but quality investors are looking for current profitability, while intangible value investors are looking for future profitability. They're looking for companies that are investing now to create moats in the future, right? So similar conceptually, but different uh, from a correlation standpoint. And so that, that's kind of what, going back to your question, is what gives us confidence that in including these six factors side by side, we are truly you know, diversifying away into a, you know, a distinct set of, uh, of uh, you know, explanatory variables, factors, um, to explain uh, the market. Yeah, what I thought was really cool about this is like all of us that are value investors have this problem right now. You know, we look at like 100 years of data and value works. We look at 15 years of data and it doesn't and there's reasons to explain why it's not working. So you could, you could make an argument that value is dead, but you could also make an argument that value is not dead. And so like when I originally looked at your work, I was thinking of, you know, this is a replacement for traditional value. But then when I, when I read this paper, I'm like, you know, maybe that's not the answer here. You know, we don't know if value is dead or value is not dead. This is really a compliment to, to traditional value that works together with it in a portfolio that helps us in either of those scenarios. I mean, is that kind of the way you look at it too? Yeah, I, I would say that my, my thinking evolved very much the same way yours did, right? And maybe this is just, you know, being kind of hubristic, being like, all right, well, I discovered a better version of value. But like the more you think about it, right? You're like, these things actually complement each other very well. And, and, and in some way, it actually mirrors the, the evolution of the space in general, right? So like price the book, that was like the only way to do value. And then you know, people said, well, why don't we add, why don't we diversify away from just book value in case there's too much noise in that metric and we'll add, you know, price to earnings, price to sales, price to cash flow, EBITDA, EBITDA right? other composite metrics of value. By the way, when you do that, um, what you're doing is you're adding some kind of quality filter. So think about like price to earnings is equal to price to book times return on equity, just mathematically, right? So you're kind of giving it a quality bias, which has helped, as we know, the past decade. So this diversification has worked. Right. There could be a state of the world where it doesn't work, but in general, like with anything, diversification is a free launch. So you want to do that. 
So you can almost think of intangible values being kind of a further evolution of this idea, which is you know, a hedge against the case where maybe Kai is right. Maybe the economy is, is changing and you know, being, being very focused on the most traditional, uh, strict constructionist, if you will, way of defining value is not going to work. And in that state of the world, that will, will underperform, obviously, but intangible value will outperform, right? And so it kind of hedges you. And maybe Kai's wrong, and maybe you know, we'll just go back to business as usual, and intangibles will kind of go away from the public conscience, in which case IHML will underperform, and HML will do really well. So kind of putting it together in a way is, you know, again, not just statistically, but just conceptually, is a hedge against you know, various um, you know, states of the world, various um, you know, tr macro trends playing out. What do you think needs to happen for like, it, 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 academics have looked at this some, but like they're not looking at this a ton in the academic literature. And I'm wondering like, what do you think needs to happen? Is it really just a matter of we need more data on this stuff, like on these intangibles to be able to test it over longer periods of time for academics to embrace it? I mean, do you think that's what really needs to happen? Well, I, I think you can't, right? We, we, there's always a seduction in like saying, oh, well, my back is 200 years, so it must work. But to some extent, like it almost doesn't, the first 190 years don't matter, right? Like who cares? <laughs> that was before like the computer, that was before electricity. Right, like that doesn't really matter. So I think you know, one, first of all, is, is a willingness to rely a little bit less on having super long back tests, um, and instead you replace that with intuition fundamentals. Right, like I think a lot of academics are overly focused on like the data and not enough thinking. Being like, all right, well, it should brand matter. Of course, it should matter. I mean, how can you argue it doesn't? Matter? How can you argue that IP doesn't matter today? Um, I think the other thing that's really important, and this goes back to the point I made earlier um, around unstructured data, is I think like a lot of the you know, in order to kind of do what I'm doing here, you have to kind of combine two things. So you have to combine an understanding of the academic literature, quant finance academic literature, along with like some kind of computer science, machine learning um, skills to be able to kind of incorporate this, right? Because like if you only have the first, then you're stuck using structured data, which, you know, as I pointed, which I, I believe, you know, is not really going to explain intangibles that well. In order to get intangibles into the mix, you really need to have all the stuff. And the good news, by the way, and I think that, you know, time is on our side here is that even with this chat GPT hype, you have so many more people like, you know, both young and old kind of waking up to the potential of this technology and its ability to take unstructured data and like, like text and make it into structured factors, right? So I think as this becomes more and more widespread, accessible to the average data scientist or researcher, um, it's going to become table stakes, right? So we're all going to be using unstructured data and alternative data in our um, factor investing. And I think that will kind of usher in the next age um, for, for factors. Yeah, like one of the interesting things I've learned is like, even if you have a really, really long period of time, 100 years, you know, that's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean the next 100 are going to be like the last 100. And, you know, Adam, Adam Butler was on our podcast and he talked about like yeah. the past being just one sample draw and an infinite series of potential sample draws. And that's kind of got me around to this thinking of like, even if you rely on really long term data, I mean, logic has to really come in here and reason have to come in here. You know, it has to be coupled with your data as well, because even 100 years of data, things could change. You know, that 100 years could have played out very differently than the 100 years did. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Well, and that's what I like what Kai said. You know, you're sort of by using this additional six factor, you're sort of like hedging your outcomes because we don't know what the future is going to hold. And so if it's uncorrelated, it's more diversified. It can only be sort of, you know, in, in a portfolio. That's th those are the things you want to look for, I think so. Yeah, so in the second half of your paper, you took this from a long short framework into a long only framework, which I like because as, as we both mentioned earlier, like this, this is the way people use it in the real world for the most part. So can you just talk about that and sort of what your thought process was in, in thinking about this like in a long only construction? Yeah, so yeah, so, so my starting point was to say, if I was investing you know, my money, long only investor, 
I would start by saying, all right, well, I'm just going to buy a Vanguard fund. I'm going to buy an index fund, right? Just get the market exposure, start with that. And then, you know, from there, it's like, all right, well, you know, I think factors are a good way to invest. So let me, you know, carve out some allocation from the index fund to give to factor funds. Um, and, you know, in, in this model portfolio design, they said, and this is just completely made up, let's do 50% index funds, 50% factor funds. But the key is that these factor funds are not long short, as you, as you point out. They're long only. And so what that means is you take like the long side of the, say, IHML factor and only long side. You kind of get rid of the short side. So what happens now is you are effectively, as we discussed earlier, having your alpha, right? Because if half the alpha comes from the long versus the short, you have half the exposure. And simultaneously, because you're taking away your hedge, you now have 100% exposure to the market. So effectively what that means is that, you know, from a factor risk standpoint, your portfolio as described is now 75% market, 25% factors, right? As opposed to being equal weighted, which, you know, that means that you're just basically diluting a little bit some of the factor stuff that's not the market. That being said, you know, most investors are tracking error sensitive, right? They, they need, for whatever reason, to be able to be, you know, able to take some risk, but a reasonable amount of risk relative to, you know, a traditional benchmark. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's a tilt that's, you know, reasonable. What we found is that that, you know, 25% risk tilt effectively gives you about three points of tracking error against the benchmark. If you wanted to be, you know, more aggressive on factors, you could say, let's get rid of the index funds, just do, just do equal, you know, 20% in each of the five other factors, and you'd end up with 6% tracking error to the S&P, right? So you can kind of dial up and down on how you want, but the key here is that even the, even the small tilt was able to generate, you know, 1.7%, again, this is in a backtest, excess returns. And so you're able to kind of strike a nice, nice balance between, you know, being able to kind of distinguish yourself from the market and outperform the market while, while doing so in a way that doesn't make you so, so kind of idiosyncratic, so crazy, um, that, that uh, you know, you go through periods that it's re really hard to defend, you know, what you're doing. One of the interesting things you did here is you looked at a lot of factory ETFs that are out there and you looked at sort of their correlation to the intangible value factor to kind of see, like, are there ETFs out there that have high exposure to this intangible value? What did you find there? Yeah, so, look, th this is kind of, a, kind of a cool new angle here, which is, right, like, factor investing has become very popular, obviously, right? Like, I think very much at the expense of traditional stock pickers, right? Like people have realized that, you know, finding star stock managers is, is kind of hard to do. Performance doesn't really persist. Factors are nice because they're replicable. They're evidence-based. You can backtest them and they, you can kind of rely less on the managers, you know, ability to kind of find stocks and instead on like their ability to implement, um, you know, this, this process. And so you've seen this explosion in, in you know, ETFs in general, but especially factor ETFs, right? You've seen a lot of things hit the market. There are now dozens, if not hundreds of factor ETFs out there. And so what I said was I said, let's take like the top, you know, uh, top ETFs. And I picked it from three fund families, um, iShares, Avantis, and Dimensional. Um, and said, let's run them through our six factor model. Um, and we just look at the historical returns and find like the running regression basically. And what we find is a few things, I guess three things. First is that the, um, these ETFs are basically doing what they're promising. So in other words, the quality ETF holds, um, you know, has a positive exposure to, profitability. The momentum, MTUM ETF, has positive exposure to momentum. And then the value ETFs have positive exposure to HML. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting here, too, is that I show in this exhibit, this is exhibit 11, um, by the way, in, in bold means that it's, it's significant. Um, but what you can find is that while it's significant exposure to value for, say, DFA and for iShares, that the actual coefficient on DFA is much lower. And that's just because like, they're making a less aggressive tilt, right? So they probably have less tracking here, probably less fees as well. Um, and so that's kind of the, the way you think about that. 
The other interesting finding is that the value ETFs, almost as almost all of them, also had an exposure to, to size, right? So for whatever reason, value investors often today believe that you know um, value works better in, in small caps. And I think you know our friends Wes and, and Jack over at Alpha Architect have refuted that, but that's you know how things are done. And then the other point I would add is that there's also just been a correlation that's happened as it's developed, where small cap and value tend to be more correlated, and large cap and growth tend to be more correlated. Um, again, that's something that happened today in, in, in the dot-com bubble, you know, through time it might change, but those are kind of the interesting observations. And then finally, what we did was we said, all right, so all these, you know, huge multi-billion dollar ETFs, what is their exposure to IHML? Right? And this is where things got interesting because they all had insignificant exposures to IHML, except for the size factor, the negative uh, exposure, the significant. And so we were like, all right, well, we can't, you know, just look at these ETFs, we have to kind of broaden our search. So we built a screener that basically said, let's look at like all the ETFs out there. I think we threw out like super sector focused and then like leveraging the inverse ETFs and you know, rate them on, rate them on their, like the T-stats of their IHML exposures. And so the first thing that came up was um, you know, a, uh, an ETF that, w that we actually run. So um, that's kind of by design because this ETF was designed to provide exposure to this factor. But putting that one aside, what you find is an, an interesting mix of both growth and value ETFs. Um, which makes sense because intangible values sort of a blend where it's price conscious, but it's also focused on technology and innovation, right? And IP and you know, through that channel at least. Today, we find that you know, more, the, the greater share of ETFs that screen high on intangible value tend to be growth ETFs. So you have you know, QQQ is up there number two, and then you have Russell 1000 growth ETF, IWF, right? And this kind of gets to the next point. This was like an important point in the paper which is trying to explore the nexus between um, you know, growth investing and intangible value. Yeah, and that, that was sort of my next question I wanted to ask is, you know, you had a separate paper you wrote where you looked at some of these innovation slash growth ETFs and you realized, yes, they were getting exposure to innovation, but it was coming with a bunch of other baggage in terms of negative exposure to other things that was sort of taking away their direct exposure to innovation. So I'm wondering, we won't go through that whole paper, but I think it relates to this discussion. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so, so here's the thing, right, which is that, and this goes back to Justin's original framing, which is, what's the big problem? The big problem is that innovation ETFs have done really well, right? It's an inconvenient truth that the, you know, the queues are up 70% over the S&P since 2010. And so if you're a factor investor, and you know, as we discussed, factor investors, because of the value factor being you know, so you know, focused on asset-heavy businesses, tend to be underweight innovation stocks. And so they've kind of missed out on this, on this you know, great decade for, for technology and innovation. So what was only done is, is say, all right, well, it's not really pure to our framework, but let's just, let's just throw in the, an allegation of growth ETFs and kind of like just, you know, that'll help plug the hole. And so what we do here for this study is we say, all right, let's define this basket. If we put four ETFs in it, just representative, we put the QQQ in it and we put like the Russell 1000 growth in. And then on the um, small cap side, we buy ARKK, which is the kind of topic of that paper you mentioned, Jack. And then we also put in XT, Exponential Technologies, which is also a smaller cap-focused ETF. And when you run it through the six-factor model again, you find kind of what you just described, Jack, which is, you know, these ETFs tend to score really badly on traditional value. And they score, at least the smaller cap ones, very badly on quality, right? They're, these are kind of unprofitable tech companies, basically. Um, but they score sort of positive on IHML. And actually, I think Exhibit 17 is like a pretty interesting one in the paper that's maybe worth spending a few minutes on because it kind of like really summarizes a lot of information into a small uh, visual. So if you look at Exhibit 17, 
what it shows here is um, the in three blocks, innovation, value, and quality in the, in the rows. And then in the columns, we have value, intangible value, and growth. And, and value and intangible value, these are the long-only factors relative to the market. And then it's growth ETS relative to the market. So for now, ignore the middle column. Let's just focus on value and growth. So if you look at value, what you see is that the you know, exposure to tech companies is underweight 22%. Underweight AI companies, underweight disruptive companies defined based on our proprietary methodology, underweight patent-intensive companies. Right? So, so it is truly the case that value, the va traditional value factor, is, is anti-innovation. On the other hand, these growth ETFs fix it. Right? They have positive tech, positive AI, positive patents. The problem is if you go to the next block, so value ETFs, value funds, they obviously have positive exposure to you know, book to market and sales to price, et cetera. And they have slightly negative exposure to quality. Right? They tend to be lower quality companies. The growth guys, they actually you know, have as well a negative, they have a negative exposure to value. These are really expensive companies. And they're also really low quality, you know, where the profitability is quite low. So the point being that if I were to add growth to the mix, yes, that would solve my underweight to value, underweight to innovation by being a, a, value, a value factor investor, but it would kind of solve that problem and then create two new ones, right? It would offset my positive value exposure and then compound my negative quality exposure. So that's not really a great thing. And just, just to finish up this chart since we're here, the intangible value um, column here, this is kind of the, the I guess, motivation between, behind this, this thing here, which is, look, it's able to, to, to plug the innovation gap, but it's doing so by actually giving you slightly positive exposure to value and basically zero exposure to quality. So you're able to kind of create you know, innovation without you know, a cost, at least to traditional factors. Um, yeah, and then I guess the final thing here that's kind of cool is exhibit 18, the next one, I like, um, basically what I do here is I say, you know, we, we show that like six factor regression, right? Run it on a rolling basis through time and use it then to then decompose the returns of the growth ETFs, those four ETFs, into the six, uh, into the various factors. And this is all shown relative to the market. What you find is that, you know, we know that these ETFs were negative exposure to quality, and that cost it because quality has done well this period, it cost it 10%. And they were also negative exposure to value. Value over this period didn't actually do, uh, didn't do very well as we described. But what happened is that by being short value, you end up creating a huge win in the COVID bubble and then a huge loss afterwards. So you're creating a ton of volatility. It's kind of what they call a, uh, a return for your risk, right? Not, not a great outcome for a growth um, fund and largely explains, say, for example, ARKK's drawdown recently. But what's the most interesting is the pink line on this exhibit, right? So what we find is that the positive exposure of the growth ETFs to intangible value, IHML, um, contributed about 20% to its returns. It was a very consistent, steady uh, driver of, of the win. Right? We, we told you how QQQ beat the market by you know, uh, 70 percentage points. Right? So, you know, and this is perhaps like a bit of a stretch, but like, you know, one could even argue that you know, really what these growth ETFs are is a backdoor bet on, on intangible value. That you know, by buying innovation, you're getting this intangible value. You're also getting a bunch of other stuff. And conversely, intangible value can be viewed as a way of kind of homing in, extracting the good parts of these innovation ETFs while throwing out some of the, the less desirable parts, like their negative exposure to quality and, and value. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things I learned from that, that original paper was like, I had always been one of these people who said when ARC was down a ton, like, oh, innovation is getting destroyed. And, you know, that's somewhat true. But also, like, when you back out these other exposures, it wasn't as bad as you think. Like, it, it's almost an argument, like, some of these innovation funds could benefit from maybe using some of the factor stuff we use to think about, like, do I want just pure innovation exposure or do I want some of this other stuff that comes with it? Yeah, it reminds me a lot. I, I did an, I had an analysis like years ago using 13Fs of like some famous hedge fund managers. 
And it's really funny because you look at their security apps, like these guys are actually good stock pickers. They can do good security selection, but they oftentimes like, piss away their returns by you know, making big market timing bets or big bets against certain industries or styles. And if you were to simply just neutralize it, right, even just like an off-the-shelf bar style model, their you know, performance is, ex is extremely good. Now you have to lever a bit more, et cetera, but like, you know, I, I would say that a lot of investors could benefit from you know, a factor lens, if only as a risk model. Right? There's only a way of controlling unintended um, side bets. Well, when you were talking, working through Exhibit 17, like I was kind of going back up to the chart where you have the um, change in return on equity and thinking that like, you know, this factor it might be able to get you into and probably does get you into these companies that have the tailwind of growth or they're innovating, they're protecting their, um, you know, building a moat around their intangible assets. Um, but yet the price doesn't yet reflect all the value there. And so you're kind of, it seems to me like the real sweet spot and you're, you're probably getting it to a large extent in your model is like finding companies that are, that are sort of migrating to this area of having that protective moat um, around their uh, intangible assets. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, like people always point to Amazon, right, as being this kind of crazy example of a company that had you know horrible earnings for years and years because they just kept reinvesting, right? They reinvested in building customer goodwill. You know, they built uh, Prime, they built AWS, etc. Right. So, like to some extent, like you're you're right in saying that like if a company already has the moat and it's a really high quality company, the market kind of knows that already. Right. So what you're looking for is companies that are, you know, pre-moat, like they're, they're getting there and like they're displaying early success that they'll be there, but they haven't yet achieved that. Right. Mm -hmm. like, and if you can find those companies, th those are great businesses. You can own them now and you can probably hold on for a long period of time, even once they graduate to a quality um, bucket. Yeah. We had Gene Munster and Doug Clinton from Deepwater Asset Management on. And these guys are like, you know, like discretionary deep tech analysts. And that's what they were sort of their like investment philosophy is, is similar to that, but only they don't look necessarily like the quantitative side. They look to see like, does the company have some like secular tailwind? Is it innovating? Is it in this area? And is, you know, and they kind of looked at those things, but I mean, but this is a great way to do it um, sort of quantitatively for sure. Um, Kai, I want, could you just kind of step us through, I think what the ultimate kind of uh, conclusion is here with exhibit 19, which you're introducing this as, sort of the, the sixth factor in replacement of growth. So can you walk us through that? Yeah, so exhibit 19, basically the, the first column is the five-factor model portfolio. And again, in this case, it was an arbitrary decision, but I said, let's do 50% index fund, 50% across the other four factors, right? That's size, quality, value, momentum. Um, and what you find is, as you might expect, good exposure to market, small, value, quality, momentum, right? That's by design. Um, that being said, the problem is that you have this underweight to innovation and you have an underweight to intangible value. Right? We already showed how in the, the, if you look at the ETFs, the factory ETFs, they don't have those two factors. So the natural solution um, is to add growth. Say, all right, well, let's just like, take that 50% in factors, add a allocation to growth, and then prorate everything down um, accordingly. Well, when you do that, you have, um, you solve your innovation problem. So that goes away. You're now neutralizing net neutral innovation. You also actually increase your exposure, at least today, to intangible value. But the problem is that your quality now goes to zero and your value goes basically 50%, gets cut in half, right? So again, this is the idea of solving one problem and then you create two more. And then we finally show the six-factor model where we, we, instead of using growth, we use intangible value. 
And now the nice thing is that you're solving your innovation, you're solving your intangible value, but you don't have to sacrifice your value or quality factor exposures, which are pretty much unchanged. Right? So you kind of get like a nice best of all worlds outcome. And that, that, that kind of is a motivation for why we think and this you know, could be an interesting uh, you know, component to a, a broader portfolio allocation. What do you think, because this is pretty, I mean, you know, the, going from the three-factor three to the five-factor, now you're introducing the six-factor model. I mean, what in your mind would need to happen in order for this to be very widely accepted in the area of empirical finance? Or maybe that's not even really what you're hoping or thinking about, but I'm just, I'm just wondering from your, your perspective, I and mean, what do you think on that? Well, I think you should ask the question of why is it not, why is it not widely accepted and when will those uh, headwinds go away? Right? I think we, we, we already discussed one of them, which is this idea of like, you know, finding researchers or, or practitioners who have a combination of expertise in uh, quantitative finance and also in you know, unstructured data and machine learning. Right? These tend to be kind of more distinct paths, increasingly they're converging. converging. And I think when they do, an acceptance of some of the methodologies, you know, in terms of like, you know, using embedding model to like to take in the patent abstracts and use it to create scores, like that's a little bit kind of out there, right? For most, uh, you know, quant finance folks, as that becomes more and more standard, because you know we'll be able to just replicate it by throwing it through GPT four or whatever, right? And then we have these temperature equals zero for these standard responses. You can validate that. I think that will be you know a, a major unlock. Um, you know, there, and then I think just more, you know, educate, investor education on the, on the practitioner side, right? Just kind of saying, hey, these, these are factors that matter. And by the way, you've always been skeptical that they can be quantified. Well, we actually think they can, right? So I think these two things kind of, there is a flywheel and they kind of come together. But, you know, I think as we start to remove some of those barriers, um, through education and through just more familiarity with some of the potential of, of AI and, um, and unstructured data, um, you know, we'll get there. It may take 10, 20 years, um, but I think things are headed in the right direction. This has been great, Kai. It's been fun to watch your evolution um, as an investor as you continue to try to tackle these, uh, you know, really interesting subjects and, and, and look at, you know, innovation and intangibles and try to back it up with evidence. It's something that Jack and I very much appreciate. And I know our audience does well. And we wish you the best with, uh, you know, future research with the ETF and everything else. So thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.